Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on the programme today on a cool and cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Nicola Howard. Nicola is a director at First Place Children's and Parents Centre, a non-profit organisation providing early education services right here in London. Um, Nicola, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me. It's a pleasure for us to welcome you onto the airwaves with us. Um, normally at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I feel it's appropriate that we approach the subject matter from that angle, because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for the likes of yourselves, to what extent has all of this affected things? Well, being a provider of education um, as well as uh, support through our children and family centre services to the wider community, it was a real, um, everything got turned upside down really as a, as a, a service that is very much face-to-face, um, working directly with children and their families. Uh, we really had to completely rethink how we were delivering our services in a really, really short period of time. And what sort of changes um, came about as a result of this? How did you adapt to actually deal with the challenges that the pandemic did pose? Well, we had to take the decision to close temporarily two out of three of our nursery settings because we weren't able to offer our services to all families. It was obviously mm. at the uh, government direction to uh, to those who were critical workers. Uh, so that brought us back down to, to one site which also needed to remain open um, to provide emergency community services to uh, children and families in, in, in our immediate uh, reach area. So uh, that was those decisions were taken before we were aware that there was mm. going to be furloughing, for example. So, you know, it's done with, you know, bracing ourselves for some significant um, financial uncertainty. Um, and then figuring out then how we were going to uh, safely uh, deliver early education to those smaller number of children who were in our setting, but mm. also how we were going to maintain contact with vulnerable children and their families in our community. And with regard to keeping in touch with those people out there in the wider community, did remote working play any sort of part? It did. Um, we all learnt, like many people, how to adjust to using um a lot of online software, many of which uh, we're all, all become very familiar with um, over the last six months or so. Uh, so that would be contacting people, you know, using uh, phone-based uh, things like WhatsApp and, mm. um, uh, you know, because a lot of our families don't have computers in, and they, they, they all just have a mobile phone. So it's been able to have that face-to-face contact with them to um Give give support, um, but but also to let them know where they can can get up, you know, get access to things. Uh, so, for example, food insecurity became a very big issue for us quite quickly. Not because the supermarkets were being, you know, people were emptying the supermarkets, but because people's financial circumstances changed very quickly too. And how was it for you? 
adapting to leading from a distance and doing everything via the remote means was it quite an easy transition or was that a little bit more of a challenge well i, w- I was wasn't really remote so i was in the center right the way you know we, we uh-huh. a, a core of us were in that we're in our, on our main site right the way through mm-hmm. um, one of the team didn't have a break between march and september you know they were in Every working day through that period, um, some of us had a few days off, um, but it, we, you know, we just had to be. We had to be here because the nurseries were open. We opened the nurseries over bank holidays, which we didn't normally do, um, so that uh, NHS staff could continue to have childcare during those, you know, very critical periods where the hospitals were extremely busy. Um, so it was, it, it was um, keeping touch in touch with with. Um, with the, with the staff team who were not on site, so that mm. they they were aware of what was going on, they still felt some part of something because obviously you're like it's quite a life changing experience when you're used to going to work every day and then suddenly for months at a time you're now at home and not working because you've been furloughed but are still employed and still very much part of a community organisation. So looking at you know team meetings done remotely, different ways of staying in touch. So. Um, people all still felt part of something. Mm. Of course, maintaining that communication during a time like this is incredibly important with regards to leadership. That is absolutely right. And amid all of the uncertainty that this would have caused, and um, obviously you've still been very much in the thick of things, how was it managing things from a mental health point of view, both in terms of safeguarding your own well-being, but also that of those around you? Because with everything going on, I can imagine there were still one or two anxious faces. Absolutely. And I think... For me, it was realising the spectrum of anxiety relating to COVID, both for for our, our, our employees, but also for our service users. And, you know, understanding uh, how, how to uh, support those, those people to be more resilient mm-hmm. um, and to... You know, when we weren't we weren't clear about what was going to happen and when things were going to change. So, you know, mental health did become you know it was it was absolutely a concern, and that's why keeping in a conversation, in a positive conversation with with our with our colleagues, but also with our families. That you know, because we did have some people that didn't go out at all for months and months. They stayed inside, which is really you know a great worry because. Um, you know, that, that having to rely on other people to, you know, to bring food to them, but they were genuinely too, too very, very concerned about going outside. So, uh, you know, giving the right cues to those people to encourage them to come out, you know, even if it was just, to, you know, to uh, have a walk around the local park or something, you know, it took a, a lot, a lot of work from our, from our family services team. Mm. Um but we were, you know, very, very concerned about those people who did feel too anxious to come out, and are looking at what, you know, what services we need to be put in place as we, well, we started to emerge from from the restrictions. But in London now, we are um, unfortunately going backwards a bit. Um, it's challenging in that respect, isn't it? Because um, it did seem as if progress was being made, and then we seem to be taking now backward steps. And it's quite obvious that even a working vaccine if we do get one it's not necessarily going to be a magic bullet that's going to resolve all of this because lingering anxieties it's still going to take people quite a while to probably summon up the courage to be going out of the home again and especially mixing with other people yeah and it's been right the way through it's been you know it's not a, a criticism of particularly of of, of any government decisions. it's just been very difficult for mm. 
anybody to 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 make the way through um, the 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 uncertainty, certainly at the beginning of of the pandemic. You know, what were the right decisions to make? What seemed to be a right decision, you know, one week was was needed to to change the next. And so, navigating um, your way through those, you know, the different information, sharing it appropriately at the, at the different levels, so that you weren't, you know, in any way interpreting what was being said. You were, get, you know, sending out a consistent message, but in a way that didn't alarm anybody or make people think that things were getting worse or out of control. I mean, we really appreciated having, you know, daily contact from Public Health England and daily contact from um, the Department for Education through through circulars, obviously not targeted particularly at us, but it did, you did feel that there was a regular uh, flow of information and, and that was managed quite well um, in saying, you know, this document has changed here because obviously the documents got very long as the months went on. Um, so, yeah, keeping, keeping a, a flow of, a consistent flow of information um, through the organisation and out to our service users. And moving away from the doom and gloom of COVID, um, we are trying to find some silver lining in what has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us throughout this year. So are there any positive aspects that you can actually take from this experience of crisis management over the last few months? Maybe something that you've learned from this? Well, the, um, it, you know, work it, as a voluntary organisation, we're able to be a lot more nimble in our response um, to, to the situation and we're able to support our local authority by being able to you know, host things on our website, for example, central resources for information for families, uh, because they were, you know, their resource was a lot more um, focused on, on on critical services in the borough. Um, but also the relationships that we, we re-established or, de- or developed further with other voluntary sector organisations in our immediate community, but as well as in the borough. Um, bizarrely, the fact that you know, if you told me six or twelve months ago that we'd be delivering services to families via the you know online software, I'd have thought it was absolutely crazy. But actually, it's worked really well for some people. Uh, those who found it, we found difficult to engage in conversations were easier to uh, were more comfortable doing that online. But the flip side of that was the levels of digital inequality that we hadn't realised were there. And that's not about giving people laptops. That's about access to the internet. People who would have possibly accessed via the libraries or in other public spaces could no longer do that um, and had very limited access online uh, because of their financial situation. So that was, uh, a, a, you know, a, a learning. We kind of knew it was there, but it was made, made um, kind of shone the light on it more strongly in covid but I think we'll we'll maintain some of those new ways of working. Uh, the meetings we have with our with our nursery families, we used to have those face to face. Now we do those online. We'll probably do a combination of the two when we're able to uh, again meet in groups larger than six or more. So uh, that, that that and that that you know that kind of actually has 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 worked a lot better than than I would have imagined. And now thinking, um, um, yeah, carry on. No, that's fine. Oh, all right. Um, now, I was thinking about um, what you envision now for the next 12 months, Nicola, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because I am conscious that we are starting to run short of time on the uh, the programme today. Because over the course of the next 12 months, it is going to be a challenging time for businesses and for organisations alike. We're going to have to get through quite a difficult winter before we can even think about the challenges of the long-term future. Um, but 
in an ideal world, what is it that you're hoping to achieve at first place over the course of the next 12 months? And where do you see yourselves being this time within a year? Well, hoping that we're not going to go down into into a more severe lockdown and then have to close our nurseries again because we're a not-for-profit organisation. Some families pay to use our services and that's what keeps our organisation able to do what it's doing. Um, so being able to get our, our nurseries back to pre-COVID levels uh, so that uh, all of the children that need our services are able, are able to come in. Um, but that's changed a lot because... We, as you've probably seen in the news, quite a lot of people have decided that it's time to move out of London. So that means an area that's already in, under great change in the north of our borough is is, is changing even more. Um, but also to be able to restore our community services, our children and family centre services, being able to welcome families back into our buildings. Uh, we have very a small number of front-facing services at the moment with the approval of public health, but being able to open our doors and uh, you know see families coming in and bringing our, our centres back to life. Um, and retaining, as I said earlier, some of the positive aspects of, of COVID because you know the new ways of working and, and the, the relationships that we've made um, and uh, grown in our in our immediate community. So hanging on to that and not not just going back to how it was before. Let's hope that it, better, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let, let's hope that it doesn't go exactly back to the way it was, because there are some lessons and positive aspects to be taken from all of this. And it would be a great shame if we were to certainly lose sight of that. And at a time where morale is on the decline, I mean, it is good to be positive about some of the good things that have come out of this, because positivity is infectious. And I think we all need a good dose of it at this point in time. And um, just in light of those aims, Sir Nicola, I do hope that, of course, there's some positive news to share on the horizon and helping that vision become borne out. And I think it would be wonderful actually to catch up at some point in this next 12 months and have you back on the show just to see how things at first place are starting to tick along. That would be lovely. Thank you. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, having you on the uh, the programme with us today. It's been a real, real pleasure having you. And most importantly as well, until we do get to touch base again, hopefully, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on. And that extends to everybody involved at first place because we're not out of the woods with this yet. But let us keep our fingers crossed that we're not going to be stuck in the rut for too much longer. Thank you very much. I'd also like to extend that message to all of our listeners tuning in today as well. Please do look after yourselves, stay well and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Nicola Howard, Director at First Place Children's and Parents Centre, onto today's programme. Um, Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, who enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth. He held numerous senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, as well as serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. His years in politics saw him elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? 
Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. and. In that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side 
effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain, and the like, uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, mm. but actually I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, We may have seen the signals elsewhere Uh, across the world and taking them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, Those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings 
uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm-hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Sh- uh, shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well.
So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, 
when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need 
an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sukir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sukir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, Sakir uh, Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become 
the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.